0: That's by far the most uh, stab entry ones that I've come across in over 20 years of investigating murders a um, hundred times. Think about how difficult that is or how long that takes. For listeners out there, just smack your hand against a table a hundred times. See how long that takes.
1: Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Todd Schumacher, Part 1. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast. I am Wendy. And I'm David. Well, David, we have with us today, retired detective Rob Wilson. How are you, Rob?
0: I'm doing very well.
1: Thank you for coming back on our show.
0: Absolutely. Anytime.
1: You know, we've had Rob here with us before on the case of Alex Johnson and Megan Liebingood. And now we have Rob here with us on a 2015 murder of Todd Shoemaker.
2: Is it Schumacher or Maker? I think it's Schumacher. Okay, gotcha. We're good. Yeah, I just want to make sure because it's kind of tricky
0: on the spelling a little bit.
1: Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Absolutely. Um, Was on the Lexington Police Department for 23 years. I believe spent two and a half to three years on patrol, then moved into homicide where I believe was close to 17, 18 years in active homicide, then finished the last two or three years of my career running the cold case unit.
1: Nice. Are you enjoying your retirement days?
0: Very much so, yes.
1: I'm sure they miss having you.
2: Do you miss doing cold case work?
0: Yeah, I found that really – well, it was really challenging because those cases are cold for a reason. And typically those are the more difficult cases because they wouldn't – they're cold for a reason. And as you know, we've had some really good detectives in the unit, and it's fun on a couple of different levels, just the challenge to try to find the suspect after so long, but also going back and reading case files that belong to Paul Williams. Or David Lyons and just always impressed with those people, you know, just the, the meticulous documentation that the really good ones do. I actually learned a lot of stuff like reading through yours and Paul's and Chris's and James Curlis So I'd, I'd always pick up little tidbits like that's an interesting question they asked. I never would have thought of that. It, it's funny when you look at older work, because I was the same
2: way with John Bizak, mm-hmm. and I would read his and Dan Gibbons and things like that, and you pick that up, too. And, of course, the challenge with Paul Williams is it's all in stone. Those things yes. are incredibly heavy to carry
0: around. Man, it took yeah, forever. Well, isn't
1: too far behind. so no, just you know.
0: probably chalk or some kind of a burnt wood, I think, is what yeah. we used. We always like, joke that if Paul and Chris schoon over their search warrant, they were the first detective to do a search warrant in Pangea.
2: Uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It – uh Well, aside from that, too, just do you have a rough idea of not that it's a contest, but do you have a rough idea how many cases you either cold cases you laid down or felt like the ball moved significantly forward before you left? Any kind of. a
0: Yeah, um, I believe I put down three cold case murders before I left and one uh, kidnapping and rape. And I believe another assault first. So, yeah, I feel really good about the work that I did in that short time period. But That was one of the hard parts about leaving, because I think there were a couple more that I could have done. And uh, it was uh, Matt Brotherton, who just got promoted to commander.
2: Congratulations to Matt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Long overdue. Long
0: overdue. And uh, Matt and I went through the academy together and spent over a decade together as partners in homicide. And this opportunity came up to retire, whatever, and uh, I I struggled with it. And he told us, like, Rob, you're not going to be able to solve them all. That's why we have other detectives. You go. This is a good opportunity. And it really did. It just because, uh, man, I could have stayed there for a long time. That that challenge, you know, is it's fun to wake up in the morning and know that you've got a chance to right a wrong that's been left undone for maybe a decade, two decades. So still got one in the works that I'm working with the Commonwealth on that uh maybe we do a direct indictment that's been unsolved for over 20 years. So.
2: Incredible stuff. Incredible.
1: And I do have to say, you, I think, began working the early stages of another episode that we covered, um, the ex-husband of my best friend who also was murdered this year, Angela Wooldridge, David Kelm. I think you started with that.
0: Yes, I touched base with the family on that one. Um, spoke with them several times. Very nice family. Uh, as you know, we've had them Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so they, they spoke so highly of you and they oh, they were nice hoping that they were going to keep you.
0: Yeah, it came down to a, those are one of, the, that was one of the cases that I had trouble with leaving because they were such a nice family. Mm-hmm. And I think they had bad feelings towards the previous detective that handled the case, but he did a very good job of, there was only so much to go on in that one. I have my own feelings about what happened in that case, but could never ever prove anything and Again, that was one that was still on the on my desk when I left so that those are the ones that it, it hurts to walk away from
2: and that that pain that those families are going through you know hopefully none of us ever ever experience that so i I got used to the idea, and I thought it was part of the obligation to to be that bored form if they were frustrated to let' them oh. take some of that frustration mm-hmm. out on you it, it, I can't imagine the pain that they're yeah. in so uh, difficult thing. So good deal. It, uh, well, maybe we can come back on some of those that you laid down Sure, and, and get the files and and do some shows on those, especially again, the art of, of pulling, like you said, one or two decades. We've done some other things on the show of late where we interviewed Karen Binder with the DNA mm-hmm. Dole Project. Mm-hmm. An amazing thing. As a matter of fact, that's our, our charity of choice. And, uh, uh, the the work that they do uh, just simply identifying unidentified human remains is beautiful work yeah. right there in and of itself so it uh well what are we going to talk about today give us a give us just like a, a like a a couple of sentences on what this case is going to be about
0: yeah it's just going to be uh basically it's a domestic violence murder um the victim Todd Schumacher and his boyfriend um Matthew Donahue uh they had lived together for approximately 5 to 6 months and uh, things went really, really bad on the night of January eighteenth, two
2: thousand fifteen. Gotcha. It uh, was there anything else that stood out about it, or
0: the violence? Um, Mr. Schumacher was stabbed over a hundred times. Um, that's by far the most uh, stab entry ones that I've come across in over twenty years of investigating murders. A um, hundred times. Think about how difficult that is or how long that takes. For listeners out there, just smack your hand against a table a hundred times. See how long that takes.
2: Exactly. And
0: just to have the energy and the anger to keep going that long.
2: I was skimming through some news articles, and to be honest with you, I didn't read them in depth either. I like kind of getting uh, caught up cold with you all. I've I've learned that. Yeah, and as you know, I asked
1: you the other two nights ago, I said, "Well, well, tell me about this. We were driving to dinner, and he said, nope. I want you to be surprised. And, and I hate the element of surprise because I love knowing a little bit of detail. So I'm glad. Well, I'm not glad in a way because I still wanted the detail. But why don't we just dig in? Tell us, you know, I always love asking, what were you doing when this call came? Who who found out about this to make the call? How did you get involved?
0: Yeah, the, uh, the patrol units were dispatched, like I believe I said, the uh, January 18th, 2015, around 7 o'clock at night they were called to the residence the victim's sister had gotten worried that she hadn't spoken to her brother in a while he wasn't answering his phone so she went over there nobody answered she went in and saw the bloody mess that was all over the house found her brother in the bedroom and matthew or yeah matthew donahue I believe he was in the bedroom as well she immediately called 911 the officers responded quite quickly and uh believe Mr. Schumacher was pronounced dead at the scene. So at that point, obviously, the homicide unit is is called out. I was not on call, uh, but I was next up for the primary in the homicide investigation. So it's 730. I remember exactly where I was. I was at BW3s. The playoffs were going. Green Bay was getting ready to play. I had just ordered my first beer, and uh, my phone starts buzzing. I look down and see it's Reed Bowles. And who was a detective in the unit at the time? It's like Reed and I are friends, but he shouldn't be calling me at seven o'clock on a Sunday. So I just kind of sighed and was like, "I know what this is." Picked she up, it was like, "Hey, Reed."
1: Across the table,
0: and he's like, "Sorry, buddy." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "We have one. Uh, it's over at <laughs> Lamont," which was odd because that's probably just a half mile from where I lived at the time. So at first I was worried, like, we don't know what kind of murder this is. Um, Was it a shooting, you know, a drive by? Like, do I need to tell my kids to get in the basement or something like that? But he told me that um, it was a stabbing. We didn't know a whole lot right now. So they requested I respond to the scene. So I paid for my one beer that I didn't drink and uh, responded to the scene. And they had already taken Matthew to the hospital at that point. He was, I guess, having trouble breathing or uh, saying he had heart issue and he had some minor wounds on his hand. So he was taken to the hospital. I learned from officers at the scene that he had stated that he and Todd were at home alone when two people entered through the, the back door and started yelling at Todd and attacked. one of them attacked him with a knife. Um. So I was given that brief synopsis, but looked around at the scene and it didn't add up. There was no knocked over furniture where, you know, i would mentioned that uh, Mr. Schumacher was a, a large guy, 6'2", over 200 pounds. So there would have been tables turned over, mm-hmm. chairs knocked over, but really all there was was a lot of blood. Um, and there was a pathway from the living room down the hallway to the bedroom where it was, you could see where it was literally a, a body was dragged, a bloody body was dragged. So we knew more than likely that the attack took place in the living room slash kitchen area, and Mr. Schumacher was taken, drugged to his his bedroom.
2: If we can go into the technical aspects a little bit too, we talked about the responding officers and starting there. If you're in the homicide unit, what what is the expectation you have when you arrive? What what what's the general things that you prefer patrol to be doing or have done by the time you get there?
0: If there's any witnesses, they don't need to do a. a Thorough, detailed interview, but just get a basic story from whatever witnesses are around, um, start a neighborhood canvas if that's the type of situation you know, where that could be useful, um, and for them to have already contacted Forensic Services Unit to respond to the scene. Um, we want them there as fast as we can because they have to process it before we can really get in there and start uh, our investigation. Gotcha. And I guess the coroner comes. Yes, absolutely.
2: Well, did the coroner come to this one? Because he was transported to the hospital. Ed, well,
0: no, the suspect, Matthew Donahue, was go. transported Ed, to the hospital. Thanks for straightening that out. I'm yeah. Up. But yeah, the coroner arrived. And, and and as you know, they they run the scene until they decide to hand it over to us. They're the primary investigators at any death scene in the in Fayette County. Excellent.
1: And then also, you, did you still have the sister there?
0: Yes, there were I sister and some friends.
1: Probably a very upsetting scene for for her naturally and so you had that to de- to contend with as well as as todd
0: it's always tough to deal with uh, family members of victims but it's especially difficult when they're on the scene and see their loved mm-hmm. one in the state that they're in it takes it up several notches about the grief, the anger, the sadness. Um, and the
1: confusion. Why? Yes. Why did this even yeah. happen?
0: Yeah, it's one thing when we knock on a mother father's door in the middle of the night and sit them down and calmly explain things to them. But when you see your loved one basically butchered like that, mm-hmm. it's it's an image you're never, ever going to get out of your head. And I really feel sorry for the family members that have to go through that.
1: So did you kind of have a feeling at that moment That his partner was the suspect? Did your gut kind of tell you that that was the case here?
0: It was certainly a possibility. You know, um, you never want to let your theory get ahead of the evidence. Um, Sure, you're allowed to have a gut instinct, but don't pay too much attention to it. We've all had gut instincts and been wrong. So, you know, you just you can't help but develop a feeling, but never, ever let your theory get ahead of the evidence.
1: So at that point, I guess you you. Dive into your investigation. Do you go ahead and interview the boyfriend at that point or where well at where do you first, take your investigation? We're
0: dealing, we know it'd be different if we didn't know where the potential suspect would be. We knew he was at the hospital with Lexington police officers, so we knew he wasn't going anywhere. So we coordinated with Forensic Services Unit to make sure that we got a lot of pictures, got a lot of things swabbed or photographed or fingerprints that we thought we might need. And we did quite a bit of that in this case only because Mr. Donahue's version was that two unknown subjects came in. So obviously in that situation, DNA is very, very important. You know, if we can get a, you know, a DNA hit off skin cells on a doorknob that don't belong to the victim, the residents of the house, that's very useful. But as it turned out, when it turns into a domestic violence, murder inside the residence... DNA is almost useless because you could expect to find victim suspects, blood, DNA, hair, skin Mm -hmm. cells anywhere and everywhere in that house. So but you always want to, you know, be take caution and collect all the evidence you need because you only get a crack at that crime scene once.
2: That, that makes a good point, too, about keeping DNA in context, because a lot of people look at it as the magic bullet. Yes. And it is in some cases. In certain but cases, it's
0: fantastic.
2: But, it, but in cases like this, too, just just like back in that crime scene, too, that it, it enforces the reason why you don't want people traipsing through that because of the transfer yes. theory, Yeah. especially if it had that much blood. Yes. And because I'm going to imagine that you probably couldn't almost walk through there without it. No, this is
0: blood. one of those where we were dressed up like CSI. We had the booties on and all that because there was just it was everywhere. You couldn't help but come into contact with some blood on the floor or on a, a table or desk or chair.
1: So at what point do you begin questioning Matthew?
0: He is uh, released from the hospital, and he was only there for a short time, so we had him transported to headquarters where I was able to speak with him.
1: And so what was his—he stuck to his story of the two intruders?
0: Initially, yes. Uh, in that first go-around in an interview, if they're willing to talk, you let them talk. You let them tell whatever they're going to say, and we call that a baseline statement. We'll just let them speak, run on for 30 minutes if they want, because in the back of our minds, we already know what the physical evidence is telling us at the scene. So we're making mental notes and writing down notes as they're talking that either supports their theory or contradicts their theory or reasoning of what happened. So right from the get-go, he was just it was fairly easy to pick up that he was making this stuff up on the fly about two invaders so we let him tell his story and then point out a couple of inconsistencies and at that point he asked for a lawyer so and as you know when when they say that it's done so but i always end the interview when they do that it's like listen we're going to respect this. We're going to terminate the interview. You're going to be taken back to an holding cell. An officer will be by in probably 20 minutes, and we're going to transport you to the jail. And he was like, so I'm being arrested? I was like, absolutely you are. He's like, on what? I was like, well, your story does not match the physical evidence at the scene. There's no way two unknown intruders came into your home and did this. You already said that it was only you and Todd in the house and these fabricated individuals. So that just leaves you. and..." This is your time. If you want to talk to us, I want to hear your side of the story because maybe it will benefit you. But this story about two intruders is nonsense. You need to help yourself. I'm going to put you back in that holdover cell. And if you decide you want to talk to me, you can knock on the door and I'll certainly listen. So that's what we did. We put him in the holdover cell. And probably about 10 minutes later, there's an officer back there. He knocked on the door and said, I want to talk to the Detective Wilson again. I want to tell him what really happened.
2: Let me let me go to the layout a little bit, uh, just so people can picture this. When you're talking about interviewing them and holdover cells, um, talk about the holdover cells, what they're like, and then the interview rooms and what they're like, and are they close to each other in things like that? Walk, like if somebody had never been mm-hmm. on the fourth floor, is yeah. what we called it, what's that look like and, and what's the procedure for that?
0: Yeah, it's uh the Bureau of Investigations is on the fourth floor of Lexington Police Department's headquarters. And you get off the elevators, and you can make a right into an office, and that's where the, the homicide unit is. You can make a left, and you'll go into general investigations where there's cubicles of probably, they have about 40 desks of detectives up there. Probably all right. And then we have some administrative offices, and uh, along the back wall, we have three interview rooms, which are, there's a table, a couple of chairs, um, carpeted, fairly nice. um. But then you go further down the wall and we have three holding cells, which is basically like a a jail cell. There's a bench, um, nothing else in there, and it's a large steel metal door that will lock. We do have an eye hole hole for observation of the suspects, and basically they stay there for a short period of time until um, an officer arrives to transport them to the Fayette County Detention Center.
2: Good. That way people can picture mm-hmm. what this looks like when you're just talking instead of sitting around in a, in a lobby or anything like
0: mm-hmm. that.
1: So an officer hears him knocking, yes. saying he wants to speak to you.
0: Yep. So we bring him back into the interview room, um, start the recording again. And the first thing I do in a situation like that is, did I promise you anything? Did I threaten you? Um, did I coerce you in any way to make a statement? Make sure that they're on tape zone. No, absolutely not. So you wanting to talk to me is completely you wanting to do this. There was no contact. I made no contact and get them to agree to that, that they want to make a voluntary statement. Because if you don't do that, it's going to get tossed in a suppression hearing. Yeah, on especially down Especially since
1: he had already said he wants to have exactly. an attorney present.
0: So, yeah, you have to be really careful in making that perfectly clear on audio or video that they weren't promised anything or coerced in any way. And it was a voluntary statement on their behalf.
1: So how does he open it up with you?
0: He apologized for lying. Um, he was scared. And then he went to what typically anybody will do in that situation, went to a self-defense um, strategy. Um, basically, badmouth Mr. Schumacher said he was violent and mean all the time, attacked him, and he was... Scared, and that evening, they got into an argument, and Mr. Donahue went to the kitchen to grab a knife and held it behind his back in case uh, Mr. Schumacher came back to confront him. He stated Mr. Schumacher did, came at him, and he pulled the knife in self-defense, saying, don't come near me, don't come near me. He said Mr. Schumacher took the knife from him, and then they wrestled for about five minutes, and Mr. Donahue got the knife back and stabbed him once, maybe twice. So we know that's a lie, because we right. know how many times he was stabbed, but, Davis, you know, it's like sometimes you don't get full on confessions of those admissions. Right. Yeah, you've got to. you've so now we've got him admitting on tape that I did stab Todd. Doesn't matter if it was a hundred times or one time, we've got him putting a knife into our victim. And from that story also, we get rid of the two intruders. So Mr. Donahue admits to us that I'm the only one in the house, and I stabbed him once. Who did the other 99 stabbings? You know, so that was an important step, getting over that hurdle to admitting that he put a knife in his hand and then stabbed Mr. Schumacher. Did he have any injuries
2: through this five-minute wrestling match? Yeah,
0: he did. Um, They would be what we call defensive wounds. Um, That's what he stated but what they were were slices along the hand of the
1: knife going down yes
0: as i'm sure a lot of people know once you stab somebody a couple times that blood gets on the handle and makes it very slick so when you repeatedly stab someone your hand will slide down over the blade calling causing these lacerations on your hand a true defensive wound is if you're putting your hands up and an attacker is coming with the knife you're going to have deep puncture wounds you know we see them sometimes go through the hand Um, These were lacerations. So just due to experience and, you know, previous murder investigations with sharp instrument objects, they'll typically if there's multiple stab wounds, the the suspect will have wounds on his hands from that hand sliding down across the blade. And there were also injuries to his wrists, which looked to be um, attempted suicide strikes. How, How old were those? I think he tried to do them that night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he was what we found out later was we believe that the, the attack took place in the living room, and Mr. Schumacher was drugged into the bedroom and up on the bed. And Mr. Donahue laid with him in the bed for several hours while he was oh. dead.
2: Did he have blood on his clothing that would yes. kind of lead you to that too? And another thing, too, comes back to his own estimation of five minutes. And of course, that's an estimation sure. of a wrestling match like that. You're right. It, in one, five minutes, just like 100 stab wounds, is a long time. When you're fighting someone, yes, exactly. it's an eternity. Yeah, we know that yes. from experience. And then. The idea that in that five minutes, you're right, that house, parts of that house would have had been wrecked. Yeah. There's, there's no way you do that. Like, we'll draw a circle and, and fight. It's it's going to be all over the house probably. Yeah. And
0: what we tended to believe, um, strangely enough, there was blood all over the floor and on the carpet and the walls. Um, But it was like spatter and pooling, but just a little bit of pooling. We uh, I remember when we flipped the cushions over on the couch. The, the couch was fine. There was no blood on the couch seats. We flipped them over. There was a ton of blood, like a substantial amount of pooling on those cushions. I believe that he attacked him right there, and that's where the majority of blood loss came. He flipped
1: the cushions back over yes. so you wouldn't see it? Yeah. Did he ever, or did you ever at any point tell him it's not one or two stab wounds, it's in fact a hundred? Uh,
0: I didn't know at that time how many it was. It was only till after the autopsy that we learned. But you could tell it was
1: more than one or two.
0: Yeah, at least three dozen that I could see just visually. And that comes back to
2: that thing we've talked about before where uh, you go in that room sometimes with like that much. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the struggle with that is is. Uh, is what can you do with that much? Yeah. But the big thing, like you said, is that I don't think I ever got told the real truth. You probably did. I've you. never have. But man, if you can make that window where they do something as simple as is start the process and everything, but you're really, you don't have everything like they have on TV. Right. Right. And CSI hasn't done their 28-minute DNA test yet. And. And definitely, the autopsy's not going on
0: down in the garage. We, we know that's not happening. So. Yeah, we're not getting DNA hits in five minutes. And
2: Exactly. Yeah. Did they have a history? Well, first of all, any idea how long they'd been a couple?
0: About half a year, Got a half according a year. to uh, relatives and Mr. Donahue himself. Any
2: legal history of domestic violence? Any no. No. I was always curious about that.
0: There was a, an interesting issue about this case. The, the couple shared a dog. It was primarily uh, Mr. Schumacher's uh, named Monroe. And there was an argument. Uh, this was a couple of weeks before the, the murder. Uh, Mr. Donahue had gotten angry at Mr. Schumacher, taken his dog and put it in the oven and turned the oven on.
1: Hey, you know there's more to this story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are.
2: The Murder Police podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims, so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at MurderPolicePodcast.com, where you will find show notes, transcripts, information about our presenters, and a link to the official Murder Police Podcast merch store, where you can purchase a huge variety of Murder Police Podcast swag. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Which is closed caption for those that are hearing impaired. Just search for the Murder Police podcast, and you will find us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Make sure you set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.